Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit mysouthland.com. Let's do a Christmas message. I've been doing Romans for a while, but today we're going to jump into Matthew. And I want to read you a bunch of verses here, the Christmas story. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Christmas story. Let's pray, and, and then we'll get into this. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came to earth and that you took on human flesh to become one of us, to die for our sins, to give us that amazing gift. And the result is, Lord Jesus, that we can have joy and we can have hope, which we experience a little bit in our Southland family here this morning, this ability to have joy and to have hope in a world that is full of darkness, that we can still laugh and smile, and ultimately it all comes back to you. So we thank you for this Christmas story. We thank you that it's real. We thank you that it actually happened. It's not a fairy tale. And I pray that you would speak to us this morning as we just meditate. We meditate on this story every single year, Lord, and every single year we ask that your spirit would make it fresh for us again. In Jesus' name, in your name we pray, amen. I first got the idea for this message uh, during a staff prayer time uh, this past week on Tuesday. Uh, something that Grace Fast had uh, done while leading, and she had us meditate on the Christmas story a little bit, and on the way that the supernatural, and the Christmas story, it's amazing, and I saw it with fresh eyes again in that, in that prayer meeting that we had, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. The amazing way in the Christmas story, how the supernatural and the ordinary overlap, how some amazing, incredible, supernatural things happen in this story, and yet how utterly ordinary at other times this story is. So the supernatural in many ways gets clothed in ordinary throughout the story is really, really quite amazing because, I mean, the infinite God taking on human flesh, and again, this is the Christmas story. We look at it every year, and we have to, again, by the Spirit, look at it with fresh eyes every year and not take it for granted. But God took on flesh at Christmas, and we don't often think about it in these terms, but it's the greatest miracle, it's the most supernatural event in the entire Bible, okay? And normally when we think of Christmas, we don't think of it as the most powerful miracle ever. We usually tend to think of the more, the kind of the bigger, flashier ones. We think of in the Old Testament, you know, God parting the Red Sea. Now that was obviously and clearly a supernatural event, right? I mean, he, he blew in there in Exodus, you know, chapter 14, says that the people of Israel walked through on dry land with a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left. So 
it was, it, it was clearly supernatural. As they were walking through and there's these walls of water on both sides, it felt supernatural. They knew it was supernatural because they're looking at something. They must have trembled. On the one hand, they must have trembled at the, at the power of God that was being displayed right in front of them. And on the other hand, they, they, were, they were full of joy at the deliverance God was working for them. But it was one of those miracles that was clearly supernatural. I mean, as it's happening, you're going, wow, this is really unbelievable. I can't believe we're walking through the middle of the Red Sea here. It was just clearly supernatural. So when we think in the Bible of supernatural events and big miracles, we tend to think of things like the parting of the Red Sea and stuff like that. But the most astonishing miracle in the Bible, I mean, is not the parting of the Red Sea. That's an amazing miracle. It really is. I don't want to put it down. But let's just think about it. If God created the universe, you know, at a word, like if he just created the universe and got it going, you know, we, we saw that video there a few weeks ago about how everything has a beginning and a cause if God did that, parting that from his perspective of creating the whole universe, parting the Red Sea is actually, that's, that's peanuts. That's peanuts. I mean, it's, from, it's a big, I'm not putting it down. It's a big miracle. But from the perspective of God, it's peanuts to part. If you've created the whole universe, to part the sea is not a big deal. Okay? But when you think of God taking on human flesh, it's utterly astounding. Okay? Because it's not like he ever ceased to be God. Okay, he became a baby. And so on the one hand, he needed his mom to feed him and take care of him. He will have had poopy diapers. It almost seems sacrilegious to talk about, but it's true. He was a regular baby. He had to learn to walk and to talk. He had to learn those things. And yet, at the very same time, we know in Hebrews, it says that the, that the entire universe is held together by the word of his power. Those two things were true at the same time. You say, how can those two things be true at the same time? That's the mystery. That he was God and a baby at the same time is mind-blowing. How could he be a baby and be God? How could he God and be, be God and be a baby? People have tried over the years, people have tried to explain this in different ways. And every time anybody explains it to you in a way that makes sense, it probably means they're drifting into heresy because they're either explaining it in such a way that he becomes more human at the expense of his godness, or they're explaining his godness in such a way at, that it comes at the expense of his humanity. In the end, the early church after wrestling with this for several hundred years, they came up with some of the big creeds, and basically what they did is they protected the mystery. He was both at the same time. We can't even comprehend it. There's no way to comprehend how God could have to learn to walk and still be holding the universe together and be omniscient and omnipotent at the same time. It's a massive miracle, and so although the parting of the Red Sea looks on the surface of it to our human eyes like one of the greatest miracles ever. And it is an amazing miracle. It was an amazing miracle. Really far beyond it, far surpassing any of the other miracles in the Bible is the fact that God actually took on human flesh. And without ceasing to be God, he somehow took on our experience and was born as a baby. There are profound profound things in that. To think about that mystery, there are profound things in there about the heart of God and what he's like, all right? And everything in this story is like this. So God does this most incredible miracle anywhere, far bigger even than the parting of the Red Sea, and yet almost everybody around it misses it. I mean, Joseph is a good man, and when he sees Mary pregnant, he doesn't think it's God. He doesn't think 
you know, something bigger than the parting of the Red Sea is happening in his fiance's womb. He thinks, I need to, I need to break up with her to, to keep this from getting too embarrassing. And the fact of the matter is, none of us would ever have done it, would have done any differently. I mean, the supernatural was completely cloaked and ordinary. It was not obvious. And all of us would have judged. If we were living back then, we would all have thought, none of us would have thought this was a virgin birth. I mean, there are, have been billions and billions of pregnancies throughout the history of humankind, and this is the only one that has ever come to a virgin, right? So there's no way. I mean, and yet, there's no flashing neon sign. Her face doesn't glow. And so Joseph thinks, i got to break up with her. There's no way this thing is of God. He, he can't see it. The most incredible miracle of all time is happening right in front of his eyes, and he can't see it. The supernatural, utterly and absolutely cloaked in ordinary. And so God actually has to speak to him and tell him, don't break up with her, this is of me. And so you see another supernatural intervention, and yet the story goes right back to being ordinary. So Joseph says, okay, because he's a good man, he's a godly man. He says, okay, and he says, I'm going to obey what God says. But then he has to go through all of the snickering, because God doesn't supernaturally put a sign above his head that says, this, this is of God, you know, this, is, this, is, these, this couple is pure. God doesn't do that. He just lets them live ordinary. So it's completely cloaked. People can't see it. The Red Sea, everybody who was there saw it. Everybody who was there knew it was a miracle. Yet a miracle that was far, far bigger here. We see something so profound about the heart of God. I think that God often actually loves to hide the supernatural in the utterly ordinary. And one of the greatest miracles, if not the greatest miracle of all time, was so cloaked in ordinary that nobody could see it. And you say, well, what's the big deal? Why are you going to pains to point this out? And the reason is because I think the Christmas story gives us deep insight into the ways of God. And I think that many of us today miss out on huge chunks of what God is doing. That he is actually the same God today as he was 2,000 years ago when this happened. And today he continues to work supernaturally and to do amazing things in our lives. But often, because this is the way he is, this is the way he loves to work, and we see it in the Christmas story. He loves to cloak the this, this supernatural in ordinary. And if you don't know, if you don't have eyes of faith, if you don't have eyes to see, you'll totally miss it just like 99% of the people in the Christmas story. They missed what God was doing. Now you say, how is it possible, though, that God can do supernatural acts, but they feel so ordinary? Like, how is it possible? Why would he do it? Well, the why is, I think, rooted in his character. I think it's rooted in him and how he works with us and wants us to come to him. And, and he just often loves to hide in plain sight. But the how, how, how is it that supernatural things can seem so ordinary? And there's a couple of things, and we'll go through them today. One of them is, miracles can seem ordinary when they occur over long periods of time. Miracles can seem ordinary, and this is so important, because I really hope that through looking at the Christmas story through fresh eyes today, it's going to open up your eyes, because a lot of people think, God's not working in my life. And I think after this message, what I hope to have happen is that we're going to begin to press into God in a new way. He's going to open up our eyes, and we're going to see that he's actually at work all around us, answering our prayers and moving. But often we miss miracles, and they can seem ordinary because they occur over long periods of time. And certainly this is true in a Christmas story. The angel appears to Mary, and he says to her, in Luke, we have 
the words, Matthew doesn't uh, give us the words the angel prophesied to her, but in Luke, he says, you, you know, ba basically you're going to have the Messiah who's going to save the nation, and he's going to be called the Son of the Most High. In other words, the angel tells her, you're going to have the, the, the baby you're carrying, the boy, is going to be the Son of God, the Son of the Most High. But after the angel gives her this prophecy, this is the thing, God doesn't just take on flesh and drop into her lap, does he? Miracles can seem ordinary when they take time. And so, no doubt, Mary has this incredible encounter. How long does it last? 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, five minutes? I don't know, probably not much longer than that. But she has this incredible encounter with the angel. The angel prophesies to her, tells her, you're going to have the Son of God. She's like, wow, okay, amazing. But then it doesn't happen right in front of her, right? And so the first couple of days, anytime you have a supernatural encounter, you have this kind of glow in your heart for a while. So, uh, no doubt she had the glow. Was it a couple of days? Was it a couple of weeks? She has this glow. But over time, when does she actually get pregnant? Does she know right away when it happens? I don't know. But days go by, weeks go by, before she even finally starts to realize she's pregnant. And then she has to go through this whole nine-month process until the birth. And then she has the baby, and there's a couple more supernatural events. You know, wise men come and visit, shepherds come and visit. But after that, it's like, okay, he's the son of God. Now what? And he's a normal boy, except he doesn't sin. So that's not normal. Uh, not, not with boys anyway. But, um, <laughs> but, I mean, she had to be thinking, right? He told me he's going to be God, like is his, I, I got to see something here. But he's pretty regular. He's pretty normal. And she waits and she looks for signs. And she waits 30 years. 30 years. You ever thought about that? I mean, right at the beginning, there's some supernatural things happening, the wise men, the shepherds, um, that stuff. But after that, 30 years, he's not doing any miracles. He lives such an ordinary life there in Nazareth, his hometown. He lives such an ordinary life that nobody in the town thinks he's anything special. I mean, think about this. After he finally starts his public ministry, he goes back to Nazareth. So now he's finally started doing miracles. And I want you to see how they respond to him because this says something to us profound about how Jesus lived for 30 years. So the angel comes to Mary. She says, you're going to have the Son of God. And she must be thinking, what is this going to be like? And now 30 years she waits and he's just really regular and normal guy, very ordinary. Verse 53 here of Matthew 13. And when Jesus, so this is Jesus going back to Nazareth. I'll show you how ordinary he lived. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, that's Nazareth, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. They were astonished. They had no clue. They didn't see this as a super spiritual prodigy. He wasn't doing miracles when he was a kid, you know, just whatever, okay? He just was living very regular and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? They had never noticed him before, really. And then they started to get upset. Is not this the carpenter's son? Like, we know this guy. Is not his Mary, mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And again, we know him. We watched him grow up. There's nothing special about him. I mean, this is actually, if you actually start to think about this, the fact that God would take on flesh and for 30 years would live so humble like that is astonishing. It's astonishing. I mean, I don't know about you, but if, if I was omnipotent God and I took on flesh, I wouldn't live normal, okay? But he was so humble. He is so humble of heart. He came and lived among these people of Nazareth, and they never had a clue. 
And then it goes on, they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. We'll come back to that verse a little bit later. But again, the implications of this whole thing are profound. If you actually just stop to meditate, too often we read the scriptures, but we don't meditate on them. 30 years, God lived among the people of Nazareth and he never caught on. Mary knew, she had eyes to see, and that's what we're talking about in this message. She had eyes to see, and she saw, but the people of Nazareth completely missed the greatest miracle of all time. He was living right in their midst. God himself, the creator of the universe, lived right among them. Jesus played on the playground with these kids, okay? Now, again, I get that they didn't have playgrounds, but whatever they did, okay? He would have been, if he had grown up in Steinbeck, he would have played on our playground back there in the park, and no doubt some kids will have bullied him and pushed them. Can you imagine a few years later finding out that you had bullied and pushed God? <laughs> I mean, think of some of the things his brothers and sisters will have said to him. I mean, had any of you ever say things to your brothers and sisters that if they were omnipotent God, you'd be dead now? <laughs> I got four kids. Joy is pretty much an angel. She's the oldest one. She doesn't really bug, but I've got my youngest is Boaz. He's two. And then I've got my middle two, Charlie and Eden. And, and Charlie and Eden do from time to time bug Boaz. And uh, he's, so he's taken to doing this thing now. He has these little outbur- outbursts of rage. We're trying to curb it, but he'll just squawk, ah, like this, ah, and throw things or hit or whatever. And I thought this week as I was getting ready for this, I thought if Boaz was omnipotent God, Charlie and Eden would be long gone already. We'd be at two kids for sure. So here's Jesus. I mean, people had him over for dinner. People had him over for night. Can you imagine finding out later you had had God over to your house? What did you talk about? What did you, what, what was your attitude? People will have, broke it, will have sinned in front of him not knowing that the, that the boy in front of them is the very one who 1,500 years earlier wrote the Ten Commandments in stone with his fingers. That's him. He was here for breakfast this morning. I mean, it's unbelievable. But they absolutely totally missed it. And how about Mary? How would you feel after 30 years? You've got these incredible prophecies, and yet after 30 years, you're not seeing much. It would be pretty easy to start to doubt, wouldn't it? Like, I don't know about you, but you get promises, right? And doubt comes in a, can come in a couple of different ways. You get a promise, and then weeks go by, or months, or years, And two things can, well, more than, I mean, you can keep faith too, but people who begin to doubt, two things can begin to happen. After a few years or a few months, whatever, you can just outright reject, you know what, I don't think I heard God, I don't think that was God, or I don't think God's going to keep his promise. And you can just outright reject the promise you've been given. And, uh, but another thing that happens, I think that happens to a lot of people, is you get a promise and then you go weeks and months or years and years or whatever it is, and over time, life just kind of happens, and you're busy, and, and you're just going through life, and it's not that you ever overtly reject the promise you've been given, it's that it just sort of fades into the background of your life, and you don't think about it anymore. Isn't that true? I bet you many of us here, there's been various times in our lives where God has touched our life. You were at some kind of a, an event, or you had a special time with him in your devos or prayer time, and God gave you a promise, and at the time, it was such a powerful experience but now you're five years, you're ten years later, and you just don't think about it anymore. It's just faded. It's, just, it's not that you ever overtly rejected it. You just, it's just gone. You've forgotten about it. 
And so after 30 years, it would have been perfectly understandable from a human perspective if Mary had gone down one of those roads, but she didn't. I mean, even Jesus' own brothers couldn't see anything special about him. John chapter 7, verse 5 says this, For not even his brothers believed in him. I mean, right in his own family, they couldn't see it. Now, of course, later, to their defense, later after the resurrection, they all came around, and they became leaders in the early church. They were awesome leaders. But up until his resurrection, his own brothers couldn't see it. And yet Mary and a handful of others saw it. That's the thing. And that's what I want to get to today. 99% of the people in the Christmas story, 99% of the people who were living during the time of Jesus completely missed the greatest miracle of all time. But Mary didn't miss it. She didn't waver in her faith. And there was a handful of others too. Anna, Simeon, the shepherds, the wise men, John the Baptist, John the Baptist's mom. There was a handful of people who saw it. Everybody else missed it, and they saw it. And the question is, how? How is it that Mary and these other people were able to see the supernatural at work in the ordinary, but almost everyone else couldn't? And I don't know about all the other ones. A lot of it has to do with heart. I don't want to oversimplify it. But I think with Mary, we find something. And, it, and I had it in a message I preached three months ago in September. And I want to bring it up again here now, because I just feel it's really important. I feel it's a word that God has for us now this Christmas. But Luke chapter 2, if we go to the Luke chapter 2 Christmas story, it says this, right after the shepherds have come to visit Jesus, it tells us something about Mary and what she did. And it says this in verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18, and all who heard it, they heard about this thing that had happened with the shepherds, wondered at what the shepherds told them, but, I want you to notice that but, because it's very instructive, Mary did something different than everybody else did. Mary did something different than everybody else did. Everybody else wondered at what the shepherds told them. So they heard the story about the shepherds seeing the angels and coming to see Jesus, and they all wondered at it. In other words, they all went, wow, that's pretty neat. Like, what's going on there? That's, okay, something's up. God's up to something. There was an initial wow. They all wondered, they all wondered at what, the shepherd, at what had happened to the shepherds, okay, at what the shepherds had told them. But... Mary did something different. She didn't just wonder. She didn't just say, wow. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Here's the thing about wow feelings. Everybody gets wow feelings after a, after a, a supernatural encounter, after God speaks to them, after a great worship night, after an amazing service, after hearing a great testimony. Everybody gets wow feelings. But here's the thing. Wow feelings don't have spiritual staying power. Wow feelings are a great start that should trigger something else in us to take us further, but wow feelings by themselves have no staying power. And we all know that in here. Because if you've walked with the Lord for any amount of time, there are even people here today, you may even be walking away from the Lord or be distant from the Lord right now, but there was a time in your life when you were close to the Lord, when the Lord spoke to you, when he did great things in your life, and you had wow feelings, and you had no trouble believing at that time. But over time, if all you had was a wow feeling, a wow feeling does not have spiritual staying power. It drifted, and now you've drifted. Mary did something different with her wow feelings. She didn't just go, wow, she did something with them. But she did two things. She treasured them up. She pondered them in her heart. She treasured them up. She pondered them in her heart. What does it mean she treasured up all these things? Somehow she gathered these things together. Now, in those days, they didn't have ballpoint pens and Hilroy 
uh, you know, uh, journaling, you know, little notebooks, like what I use, uh, and what many of you use, or cell phones, or whatever you do your journaling on, and, and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's probably not that she wrote them down in a journal some, somewhere. But somehow she treasured up these things. She took these, these, you know, hearing God moments, these hearing God experiences, an angel coming to her, uh, wise men showing up, shepherds coming. She takes these God moments and she somehow gathers them. Did she, and I don't know how, but she treasured them up. Did she just memorize them somehow? Did she have mementos of some kind? I don't know, but she treasured them up. She gathered them somehow together. She treasured them, collected them. And then second, she spent time pondering them in her heart. She took these words she was getting from God, and she didn't just go, wow, and then expect God to do everything for her. She regularly went over them. She pondered them. She meditated on them. She went back to them. A week later, a month later, a year later, she kept going back. She kept pondering. She had them collected. She had them treasured. And this is one of the reasons why, I think, she was able to see the supernatural and the ordinary when everyone else missed it. I really believe it. Somehow Mary, for 30 years, she saw it the whole time. There's no indication in the story that she ever doubted. And she comes out strong when, when Jesus comes out in his ministry. She's fully believing in him. I mean, his first miracle in Cana, she fully, she fully knows he can do miracles. How did she keep that kind of faith for 30 years? She treasured these things up. She pondered them in her heart. 30 years go by, but she's got these, these three or four experiences with God. She keeps going back to them. She keeps reviewing them. She's got them always in front of her. And as a result, even when things look utterly ordinary, when they look utterly like God is not at work in the situation, she can see it. Nobody else can. The result was a faith-filled heart, a faith-filled heart that was able to trust God and move with God and believe God and see God when nobody else could. And this is the thing about faith. Faith opens your eyes to see what you couldn't see before. You know, I had an experience this past week on Friday. It was even before I had done this point on the message. So it had nothing to do with the message. And later I thought, oh, that was kind of neat. But Friday morning I got up early, uh, as I usually do, and I wanted a significant amount of time. I was feeling a little dry, getting ready for the message. I was like, you know what, Lord, I just need a bunch of time with you. And so I opened up my Bible, as I always do, to start my devotional time. And I was going to open up to one of my bookmarks to my scheduled reading. And as I'm opening up my, my Bible to go to the scheduled part, I saw, and, and I have these all over my Bible, I saw a passage that was underlined and dated. And, and whenever that happens, throughout my Bible, um, I've got passages underlined and dated uh, that are promises. Where in, at various times in the past, I've gotten promises from God. And so I just happened to be paging by, and it just caught my eye. I thought, oh, I'm going to read that. And it was, a, it was a promise from six years ago. I got promises all over in here. Some are from a few months ago. Some are from a year ago. Some are six years ago. Some are ten years ago. But all over my Bible, I've got these dated promises. And I just, I just read this one promise. I hadn't looked at it in a long time, and it was from six years ago. And uh, as I read it, it just came alive to me again. I was like, oh, there's some amazing stuff in this promise that is actually coming true now. And tears just came to my eyes, and I began to just worship the Lord. I was like, Lord, that is... That was an incredible promise. Wow, it's amazing. I'm even seeing things in this promise I didn't see before. And I spent a little time just worshiping him and thinking about it. It was so awesome. I thought, you know, I'll still go to my scheduled reading. You know, some of the C personalities, you've got that all in there. You want to get there, right? I thought, nah, I'm going to go to another promise. So I, I flipped a few more pages. I found another one. Oh, wow, so good. I ended up spending an hour and a half. I, I had all kinds of stuff to do. And I just said, forget it. This is faith time, okay? 
I'm not going to get everything done today. If I don't, that's fine. I'm going to spend some time with God. I spent an hour and a half just going through my Bible and reviewing old promises, dated promises. And the Lord was just touching me. Oh, it was awesome. Faith just building up in me. It was amazing. Well, at the end of it, I thought, okay, now I, I better get to work now. And uh, I was just about to get to work, and I just had this thought, you know what? You, you got your prayer list. Before you, before you do anything else, just go to your prayer list and pray some of those prayers. I thought, oh, that's a good idea, because, I mean, you're just so full. All I've been doing for an hour and a half is just reviewing promises. So I, I went to my prayer request, that I have my prayer journal, and I started praying them. The amazing thing was, now that I had spent all this time going over these promises and reviewing these promises, my faith eyes have been opened. I suddenly saw my prayer request in brand new eyes. And I saw, with some of the prayer requests, I saw, I'm not even praying the right thing. God's not doing that. He's doing this. I changed what I was praying. I had a faith come up in me. I was able to pray in totally different ways. I was able to pray with faith. I was able to see where God was at work. I was able to see what God was doing to change my prayers, to come into alignment with what he was doing. It was incredible. That's what I'm talking about here. This is the kind of thing Mary was doing. As you ponder and treasure up the experiences you've had with God, the words that he's given you, something happens that doesn't happen to people who are just rushing through life and never stop the treasure and ponder. The people who just rush through life, they're just rushing through life. Here they go. They totally miss the greatest miracles. The only kind of miracles they can ever connect with are the Red Sea ones that are really obvious to everyone. Those are really rare. But there's better miracles than the Red Sea ones. There's bigger miracles than the Red Sea ones. And they never see them because there's no treasuring, there's no pondering in their lives. And a result, we actually miss out when we pray. We pray without faith. We pray without knowing what Jesus is actually doing. And we just plain need this. We need faith. We need to have our eyes open to see what God is doing in the ordinary all around us or else we'll become just like the people of Jesus' hometown. And if we go back there for just a moment, Matthew 13, 58, and he, that's Jesus, did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Talk about a missed opportunity. Jesus' hometown. Do you think when he started his ministry and he went back there, do you think there was a special place in his heart for the Nazarenes? Like, do you think that he maybe was hoping to do some really special stuff for them? He's the God of the universe. I'm thinking he did. And yet he did no mighty works among them because of their unbelief, because they missed it. And I wonder how many of us Christians today are actually no, almost no different than those Nazarenes. We're almost no different than those Nazarenes, many of us. Completely oblivious. God at work in our lives. God answering our prayers. Or we've even given up praying because we can't see him working. But he's actually right there. It looks really ordinary. You just need eyes to see it. But as a result of not having eyes to see it, he does not do many mighty works in some of our lives. Because our eyes have not been opened. And I believe one of the biggest problems is that our lives are just too noisy too busy, and too rushed to treasure, ponder, or reflect. And I think one of the reasons we walk so much in the flesh is because we're so rushed. Feeling rushed is not a fruit of the Spirit. Did you know that? If you go over to Galatians 5 and you look, the fruit of the Spirit is lots and lots of busyness and rushing around. You won't find it in there. It's not in there. That's not a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit of the flesh. For some of us, though, we've made it an 11th commandment. We've added on an 11th commandment. We've got the 10 commandments, and then we have, thou shalt be busy, or thou art not important. It's true. For many of us, our validation is how busy we are. 
If I'm not busy, I'm not important. We don't know how to just be. We wear busyness like a badge of honor. All we know how to do is do, do, do. And it's not just our work time. It's all the time. It's even our leisure time. Many people today have no idea how to even read a good book. Never mind that many of the great leaders of the past century were readers. Many of us today, the only reading we do is an article here, an article there, mainstream media, social media. That's all we need to do. That's all we know how to do. Shallow reading makes for shallow people in many cases. Instead of reflection and thinking, our goal is constant stimulation. Whenever there's a possibility of a quiet moment, we don't even know how to take a deep breath and come to some sort of sense of God's presence around us, the moment there's any kind of quiet, we just go straight to something. I got a text, I got to send an email, I got to play a video game on my phone, whatever it is. Not that any one of these things is sinful in and of itself, but we've completely drowned out any ability to be quiet. And if you have no ability to be quiet, you're going to lose all sense of God's presence in your life. It actually says that in the Bible. Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. You can't know God without stillness. You can't know his ways. You can't know his workings. You can't know it in the rush. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. Be still and know that I am God. If you just fly through life and fill everything up with noise, you will, be no, you will end up really living no different than those Nazarene townspeople. You will miss the working of God in your life and all around you. And of course, I'm not saying that all busyness is bad. There's a place for busyness and hard work. Absolutely. But it's busyness and hard work that come out of quietness and reflection. If all of your life is busy, rush, 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 do, 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 stimulation, 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 then you will be no different than a hamster on a wheel. There's lots of activity there. It's not going anywhere. It's true. I would rather come out of a centered place, a place of quiet with God, and take two slow, measured steps that take me in a direction than what many people are doing today, which is 100 steps in a day, this way, this way, this way, this way. I'm all, and I'm making some of you seasick right now. And at the end of the day, you're no further ahead than you were before. You took 100 steps. The guy who is in quiet took two, and he moved ahead of you that day. Because we're, we're, like, we're like chipmunks on speed. I don't even know what that would look like, but I'm sure it would be <laughs> crazy. Busy, 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 busy. And 10 years down the road, 99% of the stuff we did today has no value. It's not moving us forward to where God wants us to go. As leaders, it's not moving our organizations forward to where we want to go. So we're not moving our families forward towards where we want to go. It's just busyness. And we live off this adrenaline rush of I've got to be busy. But an adrenaline rush is not enough to give us purpose in this life. So it's not that I'm against busyness, but it's busyness that comes out of quietness. That so, at some point, we have to center our, our lives and we have to say, actually, to be still before God is my number one activity, my number one priority today. Out of that, I will work hard. Out of that, I will be busy. But I will first be still and know that I'm God. 
And I will not be afraid of quietness in my life. I will not be afraid of having times where I have nothing to do because those might be the times God wants to speak to me. Every time you just go straight to a video game or you go straight to a text is another time that God does not have to speak to us. The centered life. We need to live centered, quiet lives. You know what it says about Jesus? Look at this. Luke chapter 5, 16. And I went to the NASB, which is the most word-for-word translation there is because I wanted to just make sure that this was actually in there. And this is what it says. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Did you, did you see that? Jesus himself, God, the one who made the universe and all that, Jesus himself would often slip away to a wilderness, that's a quiet place, and pray. How many of you believe that Jesus is the greatest leader who ever lived? Anybody? Some of you don't. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> Jesus is the greatest leader who ever lived. He invented leadership. All, all leadership wisdom comes from him. Amen. Was Jesus ever busy? Yes. There are places in the Gospels where there are seasons in his ministry where it says he was so busy he could not even eat. Okay? So was he busy? Yes. Was he the greatest leader that ever lived? Yes. And yet, here it says here, that his busyness was often, not sometimes, often punctuated by quietness. Jesus would often go out into a wilderness and pray. Now let me just ask you something. If the God of the universe needed to get away for quiet in order to fulfill the purpose for which he came, how much more us frail human beings? It's utterly ridiculous to think that if Jesus needs to go out into a wilderness often to pray, to get centered, to get quiet, to reconnect and see what is this all about. If he needed to often do that, we need to do it often times 10. We need to do it more because the difference between us and him is he's God. Absolutely we need it because otherwise we will utterly default and spend all of our time in the flesh. In the flesh. We need to live centered lives, not lives that are full of unfocused, frenetic busyness, but lives where action follows reflection, where moving follows listening, where doing follows being, just being with God and being quiet. Because like I said, if you do not live a life out of that, if all of your activity just comes out of being active, being active, being active, being active, and you don't listen. You don't reflect on the Word of God. You don't know how to be quiet with God. Ultimately, you'll either be like a chipmunk that ends up going nowhere, but is very, very busy and just feels important because you're busy, but you're not going anywhere. Or there's actually something even worse. You may, in your human ability, actually succeed in building something. You may be a, a successful leader, and without being quiet before God, you're actually you're actually able in your human energy to build some kind of an organization. But you, if you do it without coming out of this place of quiet and listening, being centered on God, being knowing who, are, who he is, if you do it, if you're even able to be successful without that, you'll end up building something you later regret. I, I, uh, I read an article a few years ago about a pastor who, uh, he was a real natural leader. And he built a church. I think he was there about 20 years, a little less. And he, just out of hard work and just out of having an ability to lead, 
he just built a really big church, and he just worked, 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 worked. Just he worked. And he had good leadership ability, he had good organization. He built this big church that was well-organized, had nice buildings, had all that sort of stuff. And then he had a nervous breakdown. And he had to take a long sabbatical, and for six months he didn't even go back in his church. He just had to get away and just recover. And during that time, he was really humbled, he was really broken, he started to really connect with God in the quiet. And he came to see how much he really needed God and how far he had strayed from God. And after six months of being gone from his church, he went back to his church. And when he went in there, he couldn't even, he couldn't even recognize it anymore because he had changed so much. He realized he had built this big church over the last 20 years and he didn't like what he had built. They did not know how to hear God. They did not know how to love God. They did not know how to be aware of God. They were exactly like he had been all those years. And in the end, he couldn't bring them to where he was now. He ended up having to leave. And so you have all these years of all this hard work, and what did you build? You end up building something that later causes you much pain and regret. So where was all that busyness? Where did it get him? Where does it get us? If it's not coming out of the Lord, it's leading us somewhere. And I love the Lord, and I'm actually okay with losing everything because I just have a relationship with him. I know how to be with him. I'm not just doing for him all the time. Living out of the quiet like that will save you from much pain and regret. And this is another huge reason why, and this is my final point here, is another huge reason why we need to live a centered life, quiet before God. And that is because we human beings, apart from regular input from the Holy Spirit, we have our idea of what winning looks like is totally different than God's, what winning looks like with God very often. And it's all tied to the supernatural and ordinary. God's ways are not our ways. They just aren't. And so we think that winning looks like winning. And so in our human effort, we try to win what looks like winning to us. But what looks like winning to us, winning political victories, winning this, winning that, getting healed immediately, having all the stuff that's wrong in my life being changed around, we think... What looks like winning to us often is totally different than what looks like winning to God. And the Christmas story is such a great example of that. It's a massive example of that. God is sending the Messiah into the world to save the world, right? That's the Christmas story. He's sending a Messiah into the world to save the world. So what's that going to look like? Well, human winning, it looks like he's going to send a king with an army, defeat the Romans, and conquer all the bad guys. That's what winning looks like. I'm sending a savior in to save the world. That's what God tells, that's what the angel tells Mary. He's going to sit on the throne of David. He's going to be the son of the most high. She's thinking, he's a king. And he was a king. Didn't look anything like the kind of king she thought or anybody else thought. He comes as a baby in a manger. And the next thing you know, they're running for their lives to Egypt. Okay, and then have you read the part in Matthew chapter 2 about Herod killing all the babies. That doesn't look like winning, does it? Matthew 2, 16 to 18. This is all part of the Christmas story, which is one of the greatest stories of God's victories of all time leading up to the cross, which is another example of this doesn't look like winning. He gets born in a manger. They run to, Herod, to Egypt to be saved from Herod, only to die 33 years later on a cross. How is that winning? How is that saving anyone? And yet it's the greatest victory up until when the second coming, when Jesus actually overtly conquers evil. 
And Herod, I mean, this is all part of the Christmas story, which is the story of God winning this huge victory over the devil and sin. But look at, look at how the winning looks from human perspective, people living then. Herod, when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Is that not, that, that's part of the Christmas story, but it's awful, isn't it? It's awful, isn't it? And God knew it was coming. He prophesied. Now, time off for one second. Some people say, how can a good God allow babies to die? Okay? And that would be evil, wouldn't it? Well, first of all, let's just take a time out. First of all, if you don't believe in God, then why are you so upset? If you don't believe in God, all, we are, all I am is a lump of molecules. Who cares if a bunch of two-year-old babies die? They're just lumps of molecules too. There is no right and wrong or evil. So first of all, when people say God is evil, they, you have to believe in God for there to be evil. Otherwise, there's nothing to be mad about. Second of all, let's look at this from the perspective of God. He made the universe. He made heaven. He lives in heaven. Is it better to live in heaven or is it better to live on earth? It's better to live in heaven. When those babies died, did they go to a bad place or did they go to a good place? If you could talk to any of the babies of Bethlehem and say, um, isn't that a horrible thing God allowed you to be killed? Don't you wish you could come back and live on earth with the rest of us and be sick and have anxiety and worry and sin and all this junk? And the babies say, we don't want to come back. So God's not bad. Okay, that was just my little timeout. I don't know what that just came over me. <laughs> but from the perspective of the people living in this time, from the perspective of the people living in this time, was this an awful, horrible event? Yeah. Is there anyone who could have seen that somehow this awful, tragic event is actually a win? From human perspective, no way. There's nothing redeeming about Herod going in and killing a bunch of babies. That doesn't look good at all. How do you find the positive in that? And yet now with retrospect we can look back and we can say this is all part of God winning. But see this is just the thing. When you're in the flesh you have no idea what real winning looks like. So you're busy, 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 busy. You're too busy to pray. You're too busy to quiet. You're too busy to reflect, to get promises from God because you're so important and you're so busy. So what is it you're shooting for again? Well, what is a win for you? And you just draw me this picture. This is what I'm going for. The thing is, you have no idea the mind of God. And what looks like a win to you might be utter loss in eternity. And what looks like utter loss to you in your flesh might be the biggest win ever. But the only way for you to come along board with God in his majesty and sovereignty, what is real winning is for you to get quiet before him before you get busy. It's the only way to get the mind of God, the perspective of God, winning with him. I wonder how many of us operate in the flesh who do not know how to quiet, who do not know how to listen, who do not know how to just sit and be with God, who have not gone deep with God, are still putting our hopes in winning from a human vantage point. Recently, I had a time with the Lord. Because, I mean, you look at the news, right? The stuff that's going on around, and, and you just think, this is ugly. And it, over in the past, I've had daydreams. 
you know, Lord, I'm, you know, and you daydream. We're going to have some kind of a huge revival and this and that and everything, blah, blah. And, and also one day I realized, not that any of daydream like that is bad, but one day I just felt like the Lord said to me, he's like, like, are you daydreaming about your kind of winning or my kind of winning? Because my kind of winning might look a lot different than what you think winning is. And are you willing to walk with me in my kind of winning if it doesn't look at all like your kind of winning? And I think a lot of Christians today, in their, they just want to feel positive about something. They're putting their hope in stuff that I don't know if God ever wants us to win that way before he comes back. I don't know if he wants us to win that way. What if God's doing a different thing? What if bringing in the harvest is going to require suffering? What if refining the church is going to require pain? You know, metal that is going to be turned into a sword has, or into a tool or something has to first go into a fire to be refined and purified and shaped. Now, from the perspective of that metal, if that metal could talk, going into that fire seems like losing. And I can hear that piece of metal, if it could talk, praying to God, rescue me, I don't want to go in there. And I can see God looking at him and going, I wish you could understand, but you have to go in there. But that piece of metal can't see that it's going into the fire that's going to enable it to be refined and strengthened and shaped so it can come out and actually win and actually be changed and actually be the thing for which it was made to be. And so there's no way you and I can have any clue what does a win look like to God for our family, for my life, for this church, for our country, unless we are going to be a people who learn how to, how to go deep with God, how to sit with God, how to go to the quiet place for God, and this is with God. And this isn't just for the pastors. This isn't just for a person here or there. I really believe that in the, in the days that are coming, Jesus, his whole goal in these bad things that are happening around the world right now, that he is sovereignly allowing to have happened, I believe he's shaking all of us to see what, what is founded on Christ and what is not. That's not just for pastors. That's for all of us. And he's going to shake all of us to see how many of us have aligned ourselves with his perspective, his desires, his goals? And so I believe what Jesus wants to raise up in this generation is a new generation of believers, a generation of believers who know how to quiet, who are not just running around in the flesh like chickens with their heads cut off, totally addicted to busyness, social media, and entertainment, but rather a generation of believers who are devoted to quiet, who every day, it's as rigid as the fact that they eat physical food every day, but every day they know how to take a Bible and a journal and a pen and maybe some music and just sit quietly with God before they do anything else. And they know how to just sit there in the quiet and meditate on the Word of God and ponder and treasure the thoughts and ways of God. And from there they know how to go out and they know how to stand in a storm because they've got depth. They're moving out of the quiet. They're not in a frenetic rush. They might be busy coming out of that, but on the inside, they know how to quiet. They know they've been with God. I believe that God wants to raise up a generation like that, not just people who are successful leaders and really gifted a bunch of stuff, and they know how to make a real flashy-looking church or life or whatever, but people who know how to go deep in the quiet with God, who know how to treasure and ponder. You know, Mary was not someone super special. She didn't have a PhD degree. She didn't have any kind of a Bible college degree. She probably didn't even know how to read, but she knew how to treasure and ponder. If she can do it, we can all do it. Amen. She knew how to treasure and ponder. 
And I think this Christmas we need to make a commitment. Are we going to be a people like that? As we, head toward, as we head into Christmas, which is often a busy season, and into a new year, are we going to put quieting ourselves before God above sports? Are we going to put quieting ourselves above going to bed super late? Are we going to put quieting ourselves above exercise? Are we going to put quieting ourselves before God above the demands of our busy lives? I want to give you an opportunity now to just listen, and if there's anything God wants to say to you out of this message, if there's something He wants to challenge you on, that He wants you to take action on, you just take out a pen and a paper, Take out your cell phone, whatever it is you want to write down, but I just I take it out. You can take a card out of the seat in front of you. And I'm just going to give you a moment. I'm just going to ask the Lord if there's anything out of this message. Father, if there's anything that you want us, I believe that there is something you have for each of us out of this message today. Would you just lay that on our hearts? Before we leave here, before we sing another worship song, we want to make a commitment to you that if you show us something here, that you want to take us to a new level of of seeing the supernatural in the ordinary. Just write down whatever comes to your mind, a thought, a conviction, something you need to change your life, you just write that down. I'm just going to pray a prayer of commitment. If you got something from God there that you need to take action on, then this prayer is for you. Father, we want to commit ourselves to not just running around in the flesh, doing whatever looks good to our eyes, but we need to spend time with you in the quiet, to quiet ourselves, to center ourselves on you, to become aware of you and your ways, and out of that to move as a new group of people who know how to move with wisdom in evil times, who know how to stand in stormy and evil times. So Lord, whatever it is that you've convicted us of, whatever it is that you've placed on our hearts to do, to take action on out of this message, Father, we commit ourselves to taking immediate action today and this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.